Chapel, Mason City. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. I've entitled the message, Walk Wisely. You'll see why. <clears throat> this whole section of the book of Ephesians is about the walk of the believer. As you know, if you've been tracking along for a while, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians deal with the position of the believer or what God has done for the Christian. And then chapters 4 through 6 are then naturally what we ought to do as Christians. So some have called it, you know, uh, you know sit, walk, and stand. The first three chapters, you learn how to sit in your inheritance in Christ, the fact that you've been adopted by him, that you've been predestined, that you've been called according to his foreknowledge, that you've been saved by grace through faith, not of your works, and all of these things belong to you as a Christian, and you learn how to sit, sit in those things before you learn how to walk in the next section. It's always important to know who you are in Christ before you try to start doing things for Christ. So we are in this section where walk is the key word. Um, chapter 4, verse 1 says, walk worthy of your calling. Chapter 4, verse 17, don't walk in vanity. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, we're to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 8, to walk in light. Chapter 5, verse 15, we'll see today, we're to walk wisely or circumspectly. The outline for the message today has four parts. It, it will be up on the screen there. They're kind of long and clunky bullet points, but if you're taking notes, hopefully there will be enough time for you to write them or you can get them later. The first point of the outline we'll see in verse 15 through 17, we're to walk carefully, making the most of opportunities. Uh, number two, verse 18, being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, number three, verses 19 through 20, worshiping the Lord filled with gratitude. And the last point, verse 21, in mutual submission to one another. Pick it up at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Father in heaven, as we turn to you, your word today, we come to it and receive it as it is, the very words of God. Lord, we pray today that you would show us who we are, that you would show us our Savior. Help us, Lord, to dial in our hearts on what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, walk carefully, making the most of opportunities. That word walk, it doesn't mean just walk. It's not like, you know, walk carefully. That's, that's not what he's getting at. But actually, the Greek word is the word akrobos, which is where we get the word acrobat, interestingly enough, right? So, or where he says circumspectly, that's the word acrobos. The word walk is the word peripateto. So that just means to walk or to pattern your life. And then circumspectly, that Greek word is acrobos, which means like an acrobat. So you're to walk like an acrobat. How does an acrobat walk? Uh, you know, you're on the tightrope, right? You're, you walk very carefully, deliberately. The dictionary definition of the word circumspectly is with consideration to all that is pertinent to circle around and see everything, to take everything into account that is important. So he says that Christians are to walk like this. To walk means to pattern your life. You're to pattern your life in a careful way, taking everything into account. Um, and then he's going to further explain that. He says, not as fools, but as wise. So 
he's not talking about somebody here that simply lacks intelligence. Um, there are plenty of very intelligent fools in the world. He's talking about, in this context, a fool would be someone that lacks understanding of God's will. Those who uh, don't know what the will of God is. They're not sure what pleases him. They're not sure what he expects of people. Fools in context are those that lack the understanding of God's will. Wise are those who understand and are skillful, who walk as acrobats, carefully, precisely, in the Word of God. So the idea is to be careful, to take heed of your conduct in life with respect to the demands of the Word of God. And he goes on in verse 16 now, and he says, redeeming the time. He's going to elaborate on what he means by this. And the word redeem, it means to buy up. It's the Greek word ex agorazo. It's a term that was used for buying slaves out of the slave market in uh, you know, the ancient world, ex agorazo, you're buying up out of the marketplace. The agora is the agoro. Uh, you know, the marketplace was called the agoro, so ex agorazo, buying it out of. So what he means is that we're to be buying up as Christians the time. I had a friend that was really into eBay at one point. And what they would do is they would try to buy up opportunities. Essentially, there's like a window of time. There's an opportunity that something could be available, and uh, you had to try to buy up that opportunity. That's kind of what's being said here. The word time, I know I'm giving you a lot of, a lot of Greek stuff today. I'm not a, I don't know how to read Greek. I know how to read the Greek commentaries, but this one's important too, is the word time here is not the word chronos, but it's the word kairos. And the difference between chronos and kairos is time has to do, chronos has to do with minutes, hours, seconds, years. It's linear. Kairos is more of like an age or an opportunity. Like if somebody says, you've only got one time to raise your kids. They're talking about this window of time that you have. It's an opportunity. And so that's what Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers is he's saying, you want to walk very carefully with regard to the Word of God, and what you want to be doing is buying up all these opportunities to live for Christ in this world. It's kind of the idea. If you're sitting on an auction and you're snoozing and you're off in the other room doing something else, you know, you're going to miss the opportunity, right? And so that's what he's saying to them. We want to live the Kairos lifestyle as Christians. It's actually a big shift in thinking. This will cause a paradigm shift in your thinking if you think about it. If you're Kronos, you're, you're bound by the schedule. Everything's just on this schedule. But Kairos is, I realize even though I'm adhering to a schedule, I'm still living in these opportunities. Like, for instance, I might go to the grocery store and say, I've got to get a, a thing of milk, a stick of butter, a thing of bread. Remember that story when you were a kid? When they, like, you got to remember all these things. But I might just be going to the store just focused on that. But God might have this other thing going where he's like, there's an opportunity there. You're going to run into somebody today that needs to hear about Jesus or maybe something like that. And if I have that mindset, if I have this Kairos mindset, these opportunities where God is doing things, you know, the best example of that was really Jesus. You remember when Jesus says, I only do the things that I hear the Father tell me to do? He was involved with Kairos. You know how you could see that fleshed out in his life? When he would be walking to go do something, like for instance, he's walking to go heal somebody at one point, and here comes this gal, and she's been bleeding, you know, for a number of years, and she sneaks up behind him and touches him, and Jesus turns around, and who touched me? And he said, you know, then he talks to her, you know the story, but Jesus 
was living for these opportunities. He was on earth for this time, and he was redeeming these opportunities in that sense. He wasn't like, you know, you're going to have to wait here later and get in touch with my assistant. I got this calendar, you know. You notice that about Jesus. He was like not hurried. And I wonder if that has to do with his understanding of time. Maybe he saw things more as Kairos. I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating, but... That's the idea of kairos, redeeming the opportunities for God. How do you buy them up? You buy them up through your godliness, through your willingness to talk with people, through your willingness to share Jesus, through your holiness, through your witness. Look at Paul's reasoning going on. He says, you say, why Paul? He says, because the days are evil. Now that reminds us that this age of grace that we live in will come to a close uh, probably sooner than later. Maybe your timing of that it might be different than mine, I don't know, but most scholars agree that the time is short. Um, he says these days are evil. So there's a lot of opportunities to buy up, right? For Christ, if you're living in a dark world where every time you turn around there's some sort of darkness somewhere, there's all kinds of opportunities to buy these things up for Christ. It reminds me of a friend of mine. I just learned yesterday that he, he decided that he wanted to go to a city council meeting. He goes to a lot of them, but he was, the issue was the books in the library. And he said, you know, I don't think that you should be having these, you know, pornographic, you know, sort of books in the public library, and it was kind of linked to this one particular guy on the city council. And so my buddy went and he bought up the opportunity, and he went and he spoke, and, you know, it did result in, uh, you know, the whole town hates him now, pretty much, a lot of people. And, you know, so you can pray for Grace Calvary Chapel in St. Joseph, Missouri, um, and you can pray for Pastor Josh down there. But that's a person that, you know, he was looking to buy up some of these opportunities uh, for God. Therefore, verse 17, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, don't be a person that doesn't reflect, that, doesn't, that just goes through life, that just skips from one thing to the next, that doesn't sit and reflect on what's going on. That's the idea of being wise. Don't be uh, unwise, but be a person that reflects on and thinks about what is God doing, you know, sitting down in prayer and asking God to to you know, give you understanding. What's he doing through your life? Why does he have you here? Why does he have you in this community? Why does he have you in the relationships you're in, in the city that you're in, the time that you're in? There are so many distractions today that it's easy to get caught up in a life that is just wasting time. And I mean, I understand I spent years doing that. He says, therefore, don't, need, uh, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, this is such an important point. A Christian needs to understand the will of the Lord, and the way the Christian understands the will of the Lord is understanding the word of the Lord. He says, don't be unwise, but get in the word. Figure out what God's doing. Figure out what his will is. We obviously don't want to get caught up with distractions and waste lives. That's why we're here, to be built up for the work of ministry, to learn what pleases God and not blow the opportunity that we have here. So that's the first command, to walk carefully, precisely, wisely, buying up every opportunity to live as kingdom-minded people, understanding what the will of the Lord is. Lord is. Now uh, Paul gives a negative command moving on here, verse 18. He says, don't be... Drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So literally in the Greek, it's continuous, or it's a, it's a tense where we read like this, literally stop becoming intoxicated. And he's, re, he's 
writing this to a culture uh, that is very given over to alcohol. Like, you know, they had uh, music events and, you know, even spiritual events that involved getting intoxicated, all kinds of different stuff. The culture, um, you know, parties, functions, meals, you know, all involving, you know, some of these were involving, you know, serious intoxication. You say, well, yeah, it's, it's just like today. I want to make a comment while we're here that drinking wine is not a moral crime against God if you're not becoming intoxicated, if you're not using it habitually, you're not mastered by it, if you're not causing someone else's conscience to be offended, according to Romans, if you're not hurting a Christian or a church's witness, and if you can do it in complete faith without, you know, like the Bible says, whatever is not from faith is sin. If you can't do it, you know, with a clear conscience, you shouldn't have anything to do with it. But he says getting drunk is dissipation. That word means debaucherous. Uh, really, it means the, the root of it means there's nothing good in it. So essentially what he's saying is if you're getting drunk all the time, there's just nothing good in this. You're just wasting your life. There's nothing redeemable in getting drunk. He says, but instead, contrast there, the word but, be filled with the Spirit. Literally in the Greek, be being filled. It's a constant action. He's telling us to be being. That's a weird way to talk. Be being. But that's, that's literally how it reads, be being filled with the Spirit. Now, why in the world would Paul contrast that with being drunk? Ever thought about that when you read through the Scripture? Well, if you think about it, it's simple. When somebody's drunk, they've given control of themselves over to something else, right? And so that's what he's saying is don't, don't give yourself over to control of this. Give yourself, give control over to the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Holy Spirit. When someone filled with the Holy Spirit, when they're filled, they're under the control or they're under, what do they say when you're drunk? They say you're under the what? Under the influence. But when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You're under the control of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Let's talk about it a little more for a second because I think that this is just such an important word for God's church today. I really think it is. You might say, I thought every believer is filled with the Holy Spirit. Why would Paul say we need to be continuously filled with the Spirit, be being filled moment, you know, moment by moment? Why would he say that if we all are filled with the Holy Spirit when we first believe? That's a great question. The answer is this. The Bible describes different works of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Let me give you some. John chapter 14, verse 17. If you jot these down, if you're taking notes, you could look at them later. Um, John 14, 17, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him, or sees him nor knows him, but you know him. Listen to what he says. He says, For he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Those are two different activities right there, two different Greek pe uh, prepositions. He's with you, para, he's alongside of you, and he will be in you. It's the Greek proposition en, E-N. It's like in, but so he, before a Christian is saved, according to the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit's next to them, and he's convicting them of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. It's also in the Gospel of John. So he's beside you before you get saved, but then when you say yes to Jesus, he comes in you. Now, when you got saved, the Holy Spirit came and took residence in you, and he lives in you in full measure. It's not like you became a Christian and you got 60% of the Holy Spirit and then like later after you did some real cool stuff, then maybe 80%. doesn't work like that. He comes in, he moves in in full measure when you get saved. 
That's not what Paul is talking about when he says be filled with the Spirit. There's another way that the Holy Spirit works with the believer. It's found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's a different preposition. So first of all, we have para alongside. We have in, which is en. And now we have a p, which means upon. So the Holy Spirit is alongside of you. He comes inside of you, and then he will come upon you. Seems like there are deliberate, there's deliberate language here describing these different works of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that's referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to make a disclaimer here that there are different takes on the baptism of the Holy Spirit with thoughtful, good Christian scholars. Um, I tend to lean more towards the Pentecostal uh, teaching of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Believe, I believe that it can, be, it can happen at conversion. The Holy Spirit can come upon you and empower you. Or it could be a subsequent thing like the way it happened with the Apostle Paul, apparently, and different things. And I just want to put that out as a disclaimer um, in case you're from a different theological tradition. But widely accepted, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is referred to as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He comes upon and he empowered the church. And you remember what happened in the book of Acts. They started to speak with tongues, uh, tongues of fire set upon them, all the people around heard them speaking in different languages, all that stuff. When you get baptized with the Holy Spirit, this is when Jesus submerges you in the Spirit for power, and he enables you to be witnesses. In Acts, he says, I'm going to enable you to be a witness to Jerusalem, Samaria, and all other places. And uh, we believe that's when you're equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit. But then we have the need for fillings. As one pastor put it, he said, today's filling will not do for tomorrow. There are many that start out with great zeal as Christians, but then they just kind of dwindle off and uh, they, they eventually become kind of defeated and the power seems to go somewhere out of their life, the joy even. And I would say that that's because they need to take heed to what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5.18. They need to be filled. They need to be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Much of the spiritual blah that we fall into at times comes as a result of forfeiting this commands. Paul's words in the Greek are imperative, which means he's, he's not making a suggestion. This is for all believers. You might think that being filled with the Holy Spirit is only for certain believers. Like it's like, you know, you've seen... Christian TV maybe late at night, and you're like, whoa, you know, like, I remember when I grew up, you know, Tammy Faye Baker, you know what I mean? I used to think, well, she's, that's one of those spirit-filled people, like where they do the cartwheel down the, the aisle, you know, like, you know, and then you go to a different church, and everybody sits there going, oh, Lord, you know, oh, dear, you know, that's okay, too. The, the person sitting like this and the person doing the cartwheel, it doesn't, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a Christian, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be being filled, with the Holy Spirit. What's it like to be filled with the Spirit? When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are yielded to His control. He's able to have His way in your life relatively ungrieved. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're producing what Galatians calls the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit bears witness of Jesus. So when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He's in you bearing witness of Jesus. He's pointing you to Jesus, how to live your life. Another thing that seems obvious to me is if the Holy Spirit inspired men of God to write the Word of God, in other words, He's the author of the Word of God, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He's guiding you and leading you and equipping you to obey the Word of God. 
This is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, there have been some abuses. You know, I mentioned some of them on TV where you see people maybe, you know, rolling around on the floor or interrupting and screaming out and crying out. That's interesting because in the book of Galatians, it says that the fruit of the Spirit, the last thing in the list is what? Do you remember? Self-control. So people will say, well, I'm under the influence of the Holy Spirit. I can't help it. You know, I'm screaming out here and doing all this stuff. I can't help it. Well, have you read Galatians? Because it says the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Now, don't be drunk, wasting your life, controlled by alcohol. Rather, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, in the rest of this passage, he gives four evidences of a life that is filled with the Spirit. And there are more, certainly, but he points out four that are really important. Look at verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all the things to God uh, for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, evidence of a spirit-filled life, singing spiritual songs. Notice in verse 19, there's two different things happening, happening there. It says, speaking to one another. So, in other words, Christians are uh, talking about God, at least, or singing about God to one another. And then the second part of verse 19 says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So, you could say in general that a Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, godly stuff is coming out of their mouth. And also in their heart, there's melody. There's a song going between them and the Lord. They have an inner joy. These are signs of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Spirit-filled Christians sing songs about the Lord. Now, you remember the context that this is in, right? It's talking about walking as light in a culture of darkness. And so... Um, that kind of got me thinking about this, you know, about singing songs. And so I Googled, I was like, what is the number one song in the United States today? What are the lyrics? And uh, I was going to read them, but it looks like there's a few young people in here. So I, we can't even read the Billboard number one song lyrics. Um, I'll read some of them. Well, no, I can't, I can't. Honestly, I can't read any of these in good conscience, right? It's by this country western singer that claims that he's a Christian. He wears a cross necklace. His dad was a Baptist pastor. He grew up singing in church. And now he writes songs that are about getting drunk on alcohol and uh, sleeping with people. And that's the number one song in America from a person that claims to be a Christian, right? So, you know, I think Paul's words are pretty timely. And people say, why do you study that book? You know, it's so old. Oh, <laughs> really? Really? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's a word for Mason City today. It's a word for all of us here today. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not singing that. You're not singing about those things. It's an incredibly confusing world for a person growing up with people like that, that wear cross necklaces and claim to be Christian and sing those kind of songs. Second evidence, verse 19, is I've mentioned it before, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the inward song that you have between you and the Lord. You're walking around in joy, man. You got the joy. What's that song? I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart, down in my I got to learn that one at Awanas. Joy, joy, joy. Yeah. And then deep and wide. We sang that one at Awanas. <laughs> That's the, that's the evidence of the Spirit. There's godly stuff coming out of your mouth and there's godly stuff going on in your heart. You have that today? I hope you do. I'm going to give you an opportunity at the end of this message. Third evidence Paul gives of a Spirit-filled life, verse 20. He says, giving thanks always for good things. 
to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that what that says? Oh, he says all things. Anybody can thank God for the good things, right? Anybody can do that. Oh, I've just been having a tremendous week, Lord. Just so much blessing. Got the job I was looking for. Everything's great, man. But that's, Paul says something different. He said the evidence of a spirit-filled believer is they thank God for all things. Yeah, that's heavy. Some people are always complaining about something, but as the song goes, when you have truly thanked the Lord for every blessing sent, then you'll have very little time to murmur or lament. <laughs> That's not the number one song in America right there, by the way. That's, those aren't the lyrics from that one. <laughs> it's a good application for someone that finds themselves in bad moods frequently. Spend two minutes, just, just jot this down, just if this is you. Don't jot this down on your spouse's notes. <laughs> just sit down and just thank God for anything you can think of. Just even, just, we'll just loosen, we'll, we'll lighten the burden. Just do it for one minute. Just, just one minute. I'm telling you, this is stuff that helps me. Because I, I go towards a, you know, kind of, that's just my wiring just does that. I don't know why it does that, but I'm just kind of, you know, naturally. So, but I sit and I start to thank God for all the things in my life. And, and you know, that really helps my perspective. It'll help yours too. Here's the fourth evidence uh, that a believer is filled with the spirit. They're submissive toward one another. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Now, Ephesians chapter five gets into the marriage passages. You know, in the next couple of weeks, it says husbands are to submit or wives are to submit to their husbands, right? Now, that is the only Bible verse that some men know. You know, here's my, you guys got that verse memorized, don't you guys? <laughs> yeah, you got that one. All right. But the whole section is prefaced with what Paul says in verse 21, that all Christians are to be submissive and submitted to one another. So I just thought I'd point that out for you. You got to memorize two verses now, fellas. Where he says sum, submitted, uh, the idea, the Greek word, is the idea of arranging one's self under. Arranging oneself under. It's a military, it's used in military context a lot about people that are arranging themselves under the leadership structure of the military. Being submissive to one another is not about anybody being smarter or more able than one another. It's simply about following design and order. When Paul says that the church should have uh, mutual submission, Christians one to another, it's just saying that we should... Uh, esteem others more highly than ourselves, that we should be willing to stand down. We're not always asserting ourselves and forcing our way. We don't go around with a self-centered attitude. We you know, go around with this you first sort of attitude. It's a way of saying, be a team player. We watched that movie Woodlawn uh, last Friday. Has anybody seen Woodlawn? Yeah, well, you were there. Yeah, you've seen it. Yeah, all right. So two of you, good. Well, anyway, there's a football team. It's the same story in a lot of football movies. They can't get along, then, you know, they get saved, and then they get along, and the whole town comes to Christ, and, you know, all that. So it was a good example of this, though, you know, going from being everybody on their own agenda to everybody being submitted as to the Lord. And notice that's how he finishes it there, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Because I have reverence and fear of the Lord... That translates in me being submissive to you, right? Now, it doesn't mean that there's no rank of authority in the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey those who rule over you, be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. Um, as those who must give an account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You know that verse, pastor's favorite verse. No, I'm just kidding. 
That verse would be meaningless if it didn't mean there wasn't rule and authority structure in place, but the idea is to be the team player. It reminds me of this uh, illustration called the Door of Humility. You guys familiar with the uh, Bethlehem Church of the Nativity? I brought a picture of it. Uh, well, it's not the best picture. <laughs> I don't know what I mean. <laughs> I didn't think it was that funny. I mean... <laughs> Well, so over the centuries, this door has actually been lowered. You can see where it originally was, right? You see that? See the top? That's where the door originally was, but through over the years, and, uh, they had to lower the door because they were trying to keep marauders from coming out. You know, they didn't want people on horseback to get in there, right? So eventually, it started to be called the door of humility, and it starts serving as this picture of, you know, in order to come into God's church, I need to bow down, Right? And, you know, if, you're, if you, you know, had knee problems and arthritis, you know, you'd have a hard time getting in there. But just like a lot of people have knee problems and arthritis and have a pro- hard time bending down, people, some people have spiritual arthritis. They have a hard time, you know, getting down low enough to actually come into the church, right? So there we have it. As children of God, we're to walk carefully, making the most of every opportunity to live for Christ, understanding, doing His will in a world that is evil and dark. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do so. I want to conclude here. The Spirit-filled life is not an exclusive, deluxe version of Christianity. It's an essential part of God's plan for His people. So if you've been listening to this today and you say, you know, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, I need a filling. I've been dry. Uh, my joy's gone. I'm not very pleasant to be around. Um, I'm not enjoying being a Christian. Being a Christian isn't the, my favorite thing. It's not my favorite relationship isn't the one that I have with Christ right now. Uh, I don't have the joy of the Lord in my heart. So if you're interested in that, um, you can have that. But I want to ask you a question first, a couple of them. I mean, are you really open to being filled? Are you really open to being influenced and under the control of a spirit that's not your own? Are you willing to set aside rights to your life? Is that really what you want? Is you really want to follow Christ? When you're in church and you're singing, I surrender all, you're not in your mind going, I surrender a little bit. I, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a good question to think about. If your desire is to let go of a life that is self-centered, you're ready to give center stage to the Lord, He'll fill you. If you sense there's a higher level, a deeper walk than you have experienced, a way of living that you admire but haven't attained, it's time to invite the Holy Spirit to possess you. Here's what you do. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, you're to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they gave animal sacrifices. You're to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. That's what God calls his people to do. 
This is how he fills people with the Holy Spirit. It starts with them being like, you know, I surrender, God. I'm done with me. I'm done. I, I can't do it. I can't be like Jesus. I can't live like he's called me to do. He alone, he alone is perfect. He's called me to do an impossible task. Jesus says, be holy for your Father in heaven is holy, you know? I can't do this. None of us can do this in our strength. Anybody in here, this is the same story for all of us. None of us can do it. We need a power that comes from on high. We need something other than our own. You know, it's, it's tough to tell a group of Americans this because you say, I don't know what he's saying. I took, I can do it. I'll just grit and I'll just I'll put some elbow grease into it. <laughs> oh, really? God looks at our works in the book of Isaiah. He says, there's righteousness or filthy. I mean, you can't do it. So you need a power that comes from on high. And so you start by offering yourself. You get honest with yourself right now in the quiet part of your heart, you know, while you're speaking to the Lord right now. Actually, this is a good setup before we go to the table here too, is, you know, do you surrender all? This is a picture of absolute surrender. Jesus surrendered his body. He surrendered his blood for the people that he loved in obedience to his father. And he gave everything and he, hold, he held nothing back. And that's what he's called believers to do. I know it sounds like an extreme message, you know, but this is exactly what the Bible, you know, Jesus says, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and, and follow me. He starts by saying, let him deny himself. If you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to deny yourself. You need to present yourself a living sacrifice. Next, what you want to do is you're just going to want to ask him for the filling. He talks about that in Luke chapter 11, verses 9 through 11. Whatever theological things you have about the Holy Spirit, those are good and important, no doubt. But the Bible, you know, tells us right here in this passage, we need to be filled in Luke. It tells us to ask. It's just very simple, childlike instructions. Just you need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. So you go ahead and ask. Acts chapter 5, verse 32, reveals the third step that God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And are you ready to obey and to do what you're asked to do? What's this entail? Simply living according to the scriptures as you understand them. It's simple and revolutionary. So if that's you today, when we go to the table, um, maybe in the quiet place of your heart when you're receiving communion today, we're giving thanks. We're appreciating the Lord for the new covenant that we can come into a relationship with the Father through grace, through faith, and as you look at these elements, as you hold them, consider the sacrifice that Christ made. Maybe this is a time just to freshen up with the Lord. Maybe you say, you know, I just haven't been asking for this. I just haven't been desiring the power of God to work through my life. And let this time restore you. Father, we thank you for your word here today. We thank you, Father, for... It's clear commands and it's clear teaching. And Lord, we love you. I pray your spirit has spoken to our hearts today, Father, and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.